This is Louisa Wilcox at Grizzly Times, where we speak for the grizzly bear and the wild places it calls home. The grizzly has long captured our imagination as a symbol of wilderness in the American West, but it's still vulnerable and needs our help. Our podcast introduces you to fascinating people, scientists, business people, advocates, artists, and others who share their experience and insights about grizzly bears and their ecosystems. You can also find us at grizzlytimes.org, and we hope you will join us in helping the threatened grizzly flourish in our rapidly changing world. Well, this is Louisa Wilcox with Grizzly Times, and I am delighted to be here today with Gay Bradshaw. Dr. Gay Bradshaw is a psychologist, ecologist, and pioneer researcher on animal trauma and wildlife self-determination. Her work with elephants, parrots, apes, and a slew of other species led her to found the field of transspecies psychology. Gay's latest book, Talking with Bears, Conversations with Charlie Brussel, is about the rancher, filmmaker, and acclaimed writer who has challenged our way of thinking about and relating to wild animals, especially grizzly bears. And I should confess up front here, too, that Charlie Russell was a good friend of mine and my husband, David, and we were both deeply moved by how beautifully Gay captured Charlie's life and passion. And uh, so thanks for being here today, Gay. No, thank you. Your recent book, Talking with Bears, Conversations with Charlie Russell, builds on your significant body of work on how human-induced trauma in wild animals can harm them. And before we dive into the grizzly bear world, maybe you can share about how you got into this work and, and the damage you've seen, say, for example, in elephants or parrots or chimpanzees. Yes, well, I would say that my quote-unquote professional life or work with um, animals and animal minds began when I was really at a point I'd been working for the government as a research mathematician and I really came to a point where, uh, which is no surprise, where the real problem was not the environment. It was actually people, humans, and understanding them and their psychology and what really lay behind um, the, 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 the destruction and the damage uh, which, which is being done and has been done. And so I, I began um, to go into psychology, and previous, just I had recently gotten back from um, Africa. It was my first trip to Africa, and I heard about it. It was a lie. It was a National Science Foundation uh, project, and I was invited as someone who did modeling and landscape ecology to look at what the effects of this sort of massive uh, translocation, relocation of African lions um, was going to be, you know, what those effects were, because South Africa was just moving from apartheid and was opening up to ecotourism. So a lot of the reserves, national and uh, provincial parks, were importing lions and um, also elephants, all sorts of the big five, uh, to uh, fill their fill their their lands that had become um, depauperate with those species as you know attractions for tourists. And so, anyways, initially that was there because all these lions were being brought in, and it was kind of a large-scale project where uh, it was saying, like, wow, look at, we're looking at lions and lion dynamics um, at this landscape level, what's going on? And at that time, just like it was the third day into the trip, uh, this park ranger told me the story of these elephants. And at the time, I was even more naive. I just didn't really understand the significance but that they were finding all these dead rhinos, white rhino rhinoceroses and black rhinoceroses, which were both and are still endangered. And at first they thought it was poachers, et cetera. 
but over a space of time, and it was over like a decade, over 100 had been killed. And they came across the suspects. The suspects and the perpetrators as such were young male elephants, which was shocking. It was unprecedented. And it was a real puzzle. That became uh, a puzzle for me and the subject of my dissertation. So I was coming to the elephant situation, you know, with a psychological, with a neuropsychological eye, which is different from a behavioral perspective. And um, the the... What really came out, I mean, it just really fell out when I looked at the biographies of these young male elephants, that they had suffered a series of uh, what I came to call um, traumas, psychological and physiological traumas. So these young elephants had witnessed in the 80s, had witnessed their, um, they, were, they had a helicopter cult. So they witnessed their mother being killed, their family being killed in this horrific uh, you can imagine uh, being shot from the air. Then they, they were infants, and they were, you know, prematurely weaned, and they were translocated to places in these different parks when they were babies, They're, and they were without the normal social structure, et cetera, and in foreign areas. Um, I mean, it was South Africa, but every place is very different and everything, so they had to fend on their own. And <clears throat> not only that, they did not have family structure, and then these young males, were not part of, uh, as they matured, did not have uh, exposure and invitation to join an all-male bull group or area. So in sort of classical terms, elephants have these two main uh, phases of socialization, which are the natal family being with mommy and the aunties and siblings, and then the young males are either kicked out or they leave in their teens and they go off um, to be with male older male elephants, and they're with them for like at least 15 years until they, until they go and become sexually mature, which is in their 30s. So these young bulls um, were the perpetrators. They were coming into must early, like in their teens, prematurely, and they were sexually assaulting and uh, killing rhinoceroses. And that was, I think, the first thing was caught by a, I think they saw the footprints, but I think it was a tourist, actually, who got this on film. So anyways, um, I was not trained in, in uh, animal behavior. My background was not in biology. I'd you know, been exposed to it. So I looked through the lens of neuropsychology, and that's when I discovered that science runs on, and this leads into what you mentioned, transspecies psychology. The biomedical sciences, and pretty much all of science, uh, implicitly runs on a unitary model of brain, mind, and behavior for all animals. And um, animal models, which is using rats, cats, you name it, in labs to probe human and animal uh, to human uh, human minds and bodies, is the standard. However, making inference from um, animals to humans was okay; has been okay, and it still is. But going from humans to animals was not. And um, when I looked at the work and given my background, it just didn't make sense. So I contacted a couple of poobahs in the areas of neuroscience, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm looking at these elephants and I'm seeing the symptoms, ba ba ba, and making inference from humans to animals. Is that done? And one famous Stanford professor said, yes, um, you're correct, but it's not done. <laughs> so I was later to learn what, what that meant of it's not done. It, it uh, you know, we can get into that later. So essentially I ended up, um, you know, doing a study on this, talking to different people in India as well, 
finding out that there was some similar symptomology, et cetera, and that they conform to the classic symptoms and the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder and essentially complex um, post-traumatic stress disorder, which is, includes relational trauma and a series of trauma which these individuals had experienced. So I established, I named this field called transpecies psychology, not to start any field. It was mainly to bring attention to the fact that this is the way science is. Science is used, cookie cuts out this bi-directional inference. And so transpecies psychology, as I said, it was not meant to start a new field, but to name um, what the corpus of science really said, and that is that elephant brains, bear brains, human brains, cat brains, and even octopus later in 2012, neuroscientists in Cambridge said, you know, they came out with this manifesto saying all animals, including invertebrates such as the octopus, have the same neural substrates. In other words, they've got the same brains and processes that we do, which gives us the capacity for thinking, feeling, and consciousness. Mm-hmm. And should give us a little humility about our role in things. I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. I said, and should give us a little humility about our role relative to other species. Yeah, um, and and as you said, it was, you know, and again, from a personal perspective of, you know, why did I end up going in to get a second Ph.D.? That was certainly not my intention. However, um, and I wasn't conscious of it. Now I can put a name on it. (laughs) I was really trying to find collective language, in this case science, uh, which would describe uh, my own personal experiences that I've had throughout my life. Yeah. Well, Gabe, let's get into Charlie. Uh, to me, you uh, might appear as kind of an odd couple. I mean, you're such a well-published scholar and a public persona, while Charlie was a shy woodsman who didn't finish high school. How, how did your paths cross, and, and what kind of connection did you have? I can't quite remember um, who it was, but someone said to Charlie or someone said to me, you know, you should talk to each other, <laughs> you know. Um, I, think, I think his book, Grizzly Heart, came out about the same time that mine, Elephants on the Edge, came out. So anyway, somehow we were given each other's phone numbers, um, and I don't think either of us, you know, were particularly interested in each other, but we followed up on it. And we just started talking, and we had another conversation and another conversation. And what was Charlie's frustration, of course, and his motivation for spending time talking to me was is that what I wrote about in terms of animal psychology and trauma, in other words, that the effects of, of human violence on animals, which includes bears, grizzly bears, um, uh, resonated with his own experience. And he had been very frustrated because uh, in our society, generally speaking, you are not, your ideas are not validated and are not considered to be valid unless you are degreed, unless you have some kind of, you know, master's, Ph.D., or, or some kind of um, collectively sanctioned authority in that way. And uh, Charlie was a very sensitive person, and when he saw the, you know, year after year, both the ranching and in the quote-unquote management and uh, agencies, biology, that were essentially exacerbating uh, the issues with bears plus his own personal deep 
disturbing feelings about seeing such violence and, and misperception being imposed on these wonderful beings. Um, anyways, he, he was, uh, you know, appreciated that, well, I've got the degrees. You know, I basically, what, what I said to him was, well, the things that you're observing, that you've experienced with bears, are what the neurosciences and neuropsychology, what science would predict. Um, so it was consistent. So my quote-unquote, in other words, not mine, science uh, would predict exactly what Charlie observed. Mm-hmm. We both had a commitment to truth, <laughs> and I would say an allergy to mistruth, <laughs> uh, particularly in the cases when it was so harmful. In, the, in this case, we're talking about bears and other wildlife. So we were both really committed to the truth. And that was something that was, um, you know, that I think really, uh, really was the glue, you know, that kept us together. And I would say it was love. Um, I grew to love Charlie. I don't know if he loved me or not, but I mean, I think it was love in the sense of that the bear world love. I mean, it was. It, it has to do with, you know, when he was with bears, and this is my experience with other animals. Um, the substrate of existence is really love. So I would say that, you know, Charlie and I shared um, deep commitment to truth and a deep appreciation for love, which we felt that nature is really made of or, or that, that is the substrate of nature. So now yeah, Charlie wrote a lot week. about love in his various books and love of being of, of the connection with bears, love you know bear love, as you suggested, and also joy, just the joy of being yes. in the presence joy. of these mm-hmm. animals um, and curiosity. Mm-hmm. And and that something was you know I'll give you another personal comment. My experience with Charlie, which extended you know almost ten years, um, conversations twice a week or more. Uh, he was just such a loving person, and he was um, just a loving person. I mean, I'm not trying to say to me. I'm just saying he was just an he emanated love and care, and so in that way, he very much resonated with what he quote unquote studied, which he you know which he did not. You say I understand bears. I don't study them, but mm-hmm. he resonated and reflected the love uh, that that nature. Um, really that nature provides. In, in your book, you describe the love that Charlie had for this particular bear, Brandy. And uh, maybe you could read a passage that gets to his connection with her. Okay. Um, uh, this is from the preface. A female brown bear is standing on a grassy bench, looking down at a patchwork of snow and turf. Her nose lifts as the wind passes, The air carries the sweetness of blossoms and the quiet growl of a snowmelt river. It is summer in Kamchatka, Russia's far eastern peninsula. For seven months, the land has rested in frozen slumber. Now, with the season's warmth, life bursts into a raucous cavalcade of color. Streams choked with crimson salmon, meadows laughing green, and stark sky beaming blue. It is bear time, time to glean every calorie possible in preparation for the coming winter. 
The subject of the bear's gaze is a man with tousled gray hair and welly boots. He is sitting on a pocket of grass nestled between the arms of a snowbank. Two bear cubs are playing near him. Without shifting her gaze, the bear begins to walk slowly toward the man and cubs. There is intention in her pace. Suddenly, an explosion of life disrupts the tranquility. The cubs have caught sight of their mother. They run joyously toward her, their faces open with broad, toothy smiles. The adults, man and bear, exchange silent greetings in the space above the chaos of rambunctious youth. Cub-minding duties finish for the day. The man rises and tucks his camera back into its case. As he leaves, he glances back at the mother and child reunion. The female, who would come to be known as Brandy, is lying on her back with her cubs nursing eagerly. Walking stick in hand, the man heads for home. It's been a grand day. Thank you. Well, Charlie spoke a lot about mutual relations with wild animals as defined by respect, humility, attentiveness, and what he called fitting in. Maybe you could explain more about this and, and how his views might relate to your own. Fitting in was uh, a term that Charlie used, and it was really a principle of of his philosophy and his ethos. And what it meant is, and, and, and he describes it, you know, when he grows up in various situations and when he's in Kamchatka, it, in a sense it's, a, it's antithetical to um, the attitude and I would say the, um, you know, philosophy of, of modern humanity. Um, what it is is that it's, becoming part, it, it's not standing out, it's becoming part of where you are. So it's, for example, it's the idea of, and, and others have, have raised it this way, um, it's a, the idea of, you know, if you c come to someone's house, let's say you're going over, you're driving in the country and you see a house, and for some reason you want to go talk to that person. Well, you know, depending on which culture you come from, you know, you go down the driveway, you know, and you wait a little bit. Some cultures, um, people wait in the car until the other person comes out, <laughs> the house owner comes out. Um, or just in any case, you go up and you knock on the door. You don't just walk on in and then go to the fridge and take out a sandwich and have a beer and ignore everyone that's around you. And that really describes... Um, how we, our culture acts in nature and how management, quote-unquote, I don't like to use that word, but for lack of a better term, um, and wildlife biologists in, you know, in these capacities, and I would say even conservation research. It's very presumptuous. Uh, it presumes human primacy, that, uh, that our objectives, our needs, come well before and are justified before anyone else, meaning bears or any other animal. So that's a kind of a rough description. But when you read through the book and you listen to Charlie's details, fitting in is also 
a metaphysical. It's a metaphysical type of uh, description as well. It's a very different mode of being. It's more in a listening mode. It's not necessarily having an agenda. It's a listening mode. It's a watching mode. Uh, it's um, it's becoming part of uh, becoming part of the landscape. And I think that we sense that when we have a you know, yearning to go to, to nature. Well, you know, if someone is, is unhappy or they've had trauma um, or if they just want to relax, in general, most people go to nature or they look at a they, – they play, they play the ocean on their, on their Internet or something like that. But nature is very soothing and healing. And that is really because everyone fits in. There's a coherence. So there's a fundamental coherence. And so for Charlie, fitting in was learning how, and it takes some time, it takes listening. Um, like when he was Kamchatka, he had to learn how to fit into Kamchatka in that particular Kamalnoya basin. It's all very specific. And he had to learn how to fit in specifically there, and he made a real effort to do that in many ways. Uh, the way he designed, the way he put his cabin, the way he walked, um, when he did things, when, when he didn't do things, etc. Mm-hmm. Well, Charlie certainly did some unconventional things with grizzlies. Um, I mean, some were very practical in terms of when he was on his ranch in Alberta, he fed in the spring dead cows to grizzlies to keep them from eating his calves, and they left his livestock alone, the bears did. But other things that Charlie did were seen as radical, especially the forging of these intimate relationships with grizzlies at such close distances that many managers and, and even other scientists freaked out. And I assume uh, that you and Charlie had a lot to say to each other on this topic of, of connection, at, of, of the profound, deep connection uh, to wild animals. Well, you know, for example, when you were talking about the cows, I mean, that's a very logical thing. See, mm-hmm. Charlie spent a lot of time... Um, understanding, uh, learning about grizzly ways and, and culture. And all the bison were gone. They were driven out by the farmers and the ranchers. And um, any biologist, you know, would look at it and say, oh, you know, you've changed their habitat. They don't have the resources that they need that they've evolved to have. So from Charlie's point of view, leaving dead cows was a way of bridging um, uh, what the way things were and the way things are so that that bear or bears were able to carry out the lives and making a living the way they were evolved to. So he was very logical about things, and that logic came from very careful observation from the perspective of this fitting-in philosophy. Um, in terms of intimacy, and again, it was the same type of thing. Charlie would often say, you know, not all bears like me. <laughs> You know, and I don't necessarily like all bears. I mean, it wasn't that he disliked any bears. It's just like with humans. There's some people you click with, some people you don't click with, etc. But there was always, um, and he listened. So he didn't go up and shake a bear's hand and say, oh, I want to see you. You look like a beautiful bear, you know, and I want to get to know you. Uh, again, it was like that fitting in. It was being very respectful. He paid attention to if he, when he was walking or in Kamchatka, you know, who was this bear? You know, what was the bear as much as he could discern? And he really, you know, was very skilled 
and you got to know things very well, um, where was that bear at? You know, what was he doing or what was she doing? You know, was he, was he um, on his way to, to fish? You know, had he just come from, did he look like he'd just come from kind of a, having a tussle with another bear? Um, you know, just, just like what kind of mood he's in, where is he at? And, and so that was really, it wasn't so much having, that was the entree to, to intimacy, and that's in the sense of that wasn't Charlie's point. I mean, it was his point to show people that, yes, you can have intimate relationships with these giant, awesome bears who could kill you with one swipe, um, and that they're very gentle and that they're very parsimonious. You know, he did that on purpose in the sense of he wanted to demonstrate that um, or disprove these myths that have been promulgated by the agencies and, you know, that are now part of our cultural, uh, you know, our cultural myth. Um, so he did want to do that, but on a personal level, that wasn't his agenda. He wanted to get to know his neighbors. I mean, that's the same for me. You know, we have black bears around here. We have cougars, um, deer, and all sorts of different wildlife, unfortunately diminishing with very low tolerance from people, humans. Mm. Uh, and the, we live as neighbors, and that's what I try to cultivate on, uh, on the land here, that, that we are guests. You know, my parents um, bought this cabin 70-some years ago, this little log cabin, and mm. they always taught me, you know, indirectly in the way we were that we were guests not only for the wildlife but also for people who had lived in the area before we so i always grew up with the fact of this is my home i've spent most of my life here um but i also feel like i don't own it that i am a guest here still i mean that you know that the deer deer, we, we share some we share this together, and we learn each other's ways. Um, and that really, li- that really brings a very different kind of an atmosphere, and that makes a shift in terms of the animals you encounter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And, and we have to, I have to interject and... this here, is that yeah. the contrary, what, Char- what Charlie called fear-determined behavior, which is uh, versus fear-informed, um, ways of being fear determined is this notion of scaring off a bear, you know, scaring off a cougar, shooting them, translocating them, um, acting uptight, making noise. He said, you know, he would talk about. It. He said that's the first thing that's going to bear is going to say, whoa, what the hell is that? I don't mm-hmm. see anything going on. Why is that guy scared? Why is he fearful? So it does this kind of escalation, and it creates that. You know, people have talked about a fear landscape or a landscape of fear, not in this way I'm talking about it, but it creates this fearfulness. And that fearfulness has been bred into our culture. Someone made a comment about how, you know, the people that came to North America, I mean, they had gone through so much trauma. Mm-hmm. They've gone through all the plagues. They've got, I mean, they were serfs. They were they constantly, you know, fighting with each other, killing each other, and they came here. <laughs> and they'd wiped out all the wolves and they'd wiped out all the bears. And that continued here, this fearful mentality. So that is a big part. Um, Charlie was not fearful. He, what he said is, I'm fear-informed. You know, fear is useful. I mean, it, it gives you information but not to be defined by fear. No. And I think what upset Charlie and I think many of us is it's not just a cultural fear. 
it's an institutionalized fear in the management agencies governing yes. the lives of these grizzlies. And it's a politicized fear because you have all the hype around and the grizzly bears as the monsters of God and the wide open jaw, you know, cover of outdoor mm-hmm. life, you know, kinds of things. So it's fear all around. And, in, and I think we lose track of how much fear is in the management agencies combined with yes. sort of an arrogance and a disrespect of their topic. And also uh, having adverse relationships with wildlife is lucrative. Uh, It's, you know, fishing and hunting and all of that um, feeds the coffers of the agencies Mm -hmm. and private enterprise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in, in some regards it's no wonder that Charlie's work with grizzlies got to be pretty controversial, but it did surprise me because he was always so funny and so well-informed and so low-key. Um, I-, I thought you did a, a great job describing um, this aspect of Charlie uh, in your preface, and perhaps you can share that. Um, yeah, when I describe him here, um, let me see if I can read a couple paragraphs. Uh, yeah, the preface actually is, is sort of, you know, trying to frame, um, let me see here. Okay. Um, I said, what Charlie accomplished takes rare courage, not the kind that held his feet planted in a field of goldenrods as a 600-pound brown bear bore down on him one day in Kamchatka. That was confidence the kind that began in the heart and grew with intelligence from years of patient learning and caring. Charlie's real courage lay elsewhere. What sets him apart and is truly remarkable is the fortitude with which he weathered social dismissal and outrage for refusing to play humanity's game in favor of revealing nature's reality. His unyielding loyalty to nature and truth was regarded as an unforgivable betrayal. Although the exigencies were often painful and at times even life-threatening, he never wavered. He never forsook his allegiance to nature despite incessant demands and hardship. The contradictions and controversies surrounding Charlie do not derive from the man or the bears, but rather from a human reluctance to do what he did, drop all protective guards of human privilege, and walk unarmed in the terrain of the soul, in the space of stillness from which all life springs. Thank you. Well, Charlie's difficulties in some ways got worse or reached a different height when he went to Kamchatka, Uh, but he did some remarkable things there. He successfully raised several sets of orphan grizzly bear cubs, serving as their surrogate mom. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe you can share some of what he learned and how perhaps uh, that changed your understanding of what perhaps is possible with wild animals. Well, I think just what I read there sort of is the the entree. Again, when Charlie, I mean, it was a surprise. <laughs> to, that was not part of plan A, uh, to, to rescue and, and reintroduce these orphan brown bears. Um, these were brown bears. Uh, he was asked um, by the zoo, I believe it was directly, if he would 
uh, take these three brown bear cubs. They were orphaned. Their mother had been shot, and then they were sent to the zoo. And they were starting to become bears. You know, they were no longer cute, you know, and children would stick their fingers in and, you know, start to be more, quote, unquote, dangerous. So they would be killed if Charlie didn't take them. And I think he saw that as an opportunity. Uh, He was also very... Um, part of his genius was that he always was very open to to new ideas and new ways of going about things. So he took the bears, and uh, he had to start all over. (laughs) You know, he had never been. You know, he had seen bears and gotten to know bears, but as as a human getting to know bears. And as some of the chapters describe is you can't be a human teaching a bear how to do bear things. Uh, now, he underscored the fact of that, you know, he thought, he, in fact, he uses this word, I thought I'd be the hero, you know, I teach these bears, you know, and I'm saving them. And he said, actually, they knew a hell of a lot <laughs> already. Right. But, again, I come from a neuropsychologist psychologist perspective, um, and <clears throat> the looking at the development of the brain and the mind and the soul. And, Charlie, in order for the bears to really uh, make it as wild bears and to be accepted into wild bear society, they had to learn how to think and feel and all the nuances of wild bear culture in that specific place, which was Kabulnoya Basin. So Charlie himself had to sort of do an internal stripping of any ideas or any kind of what I call shards of, of human projections or ideas to be open to hearing and listening and seeing and understanding the world from a bear's point of view. So in some ways, although on the outside he was human, on the inside in this capacity he was really bear-like. And that is coming from attachment theory, (laughs) which is from psychology, which is our brains and our minds are shaped by our primary caregivers, by our caregivers. For elephants, it's a constellation, you know, and more traditional families when you had more than just a mother and a father and kids, when you had grandparents and aunts, it's that constellation. But Charlie in the bear society, Charlie was the mother bear, and she's the primary person. Of course, there are the siblings in the environment. So he really had to communicate and be and in ways that that would inform their brains and minds to be like a bear. And um, I think, you know, in particular I've been thinking about it lately, you know, Brandy actually really I think took an, I think was extraordinary. I think she saw this extraordinary person, and I think she was an amazing person, Um, very astute, very deep. And she saw something in Charlie and and really respected and and cared and loved him for that. And she kind of took him under his wing. Um, And he he said he was press-ganged. One day she just left her cubs with him. And, you know, the cubs were crying and everything like that. And Charlie intuitively fell on his back and, you know, played around, and they all came and, you know, just like a mother bear would. But she basically, this mother bear, who's supposed to be the most dangerous creature on the planet, a bear, mother bear with cubs, (laughs) just left her cubs with with, um, Charlie. And I go into that and kind of analyze it that, I mean, um, you know, he couldn't be just any goober because even if he's a nice guy, right, he has to be smart enough to know how to navigate the terrain when she's gone. It's not, it's, it could be dangerous. So there was so much that she really saw deeply uh, in Charlie. 
And she mentored him. And, you know, uh, as he talks about very humorously, you know, he was kind of gets goofy with the cubs. And she would make it clear, you know, this is business. I'm fishing. Don't mess with me, you know. So <laughs> that gives you an idea. Um, and I think it's a very, very important example to reflect on, the depth to which uh, we as humans can sort of melt back into nature. And as Charlie always underscored, he was always amazed, despite the horrible things that people have done to bears over and over and over, even in Kamchatka, um, you know, the violence and the terrorism that humans um, subject bears to, they still are very open and, um, and, and loving and caring and curious about humans. That being said, uh, getting back to the original about trauma, is bears are showing, just like other wildlife, they're showing signs of trauma. In other words, they can only take so much. So the bears of, you know, 100 years ago are not the bears of now. I mean, trauma transmits across, you know, across generations, neurobiologically and socially. And most bears, you can correct me, since you guys are the bearologists, but most bears, black or brown, have either been shot at or they've witnessed their mother shot They've been exposed, if not once, many times. So a lot of times when a bear is killed um, and they do the skinning or autopsy or whatever they're doing, they find multiple bullets in the bear that were not lethal. These were prior incidences. So the trauma, uh, so in the shift to understanding bears of who they are, as humans we have to give them extra time and buffer to start to calibrate to who these new humans are that aren't going to be violent to them. You know, it's just like when we have people who've suffered severe trauma, whether they're veterans or some other kind of violence. Um, trauma etches in deeply, and it puts you on guard. And it, you know, it's like, you know, and, and there's a good reason that, that bears uh, should be fearful. So all of this, what Charlie showed is this is totally possible. It's totally within our grasp. But again, the caveat is that, while we transition our attitude, learning, we have to make sure that the bears are given wide enough berth that they can start to, to sort of decompress from the trauma that they've been subjected to. Yeah, so giving bears a wide enough berth is also becoming much more important as a result of climate change. In and around Yellowstone and Glacier, we've been seeing climate change essentially force grizzlies to forage much more widely as a result of the loss of key foods, foods like white bark pine seeds. So climate change is underscoring the need for an even higher degree of human tolerance and compassion as grizzlies seek to compensate for the loss of some critically important native foods. Yes. Yes. So, you know, what we're talking about, and right now, is a perfect time. Um, we can see the changes in animals with the, with the quarantining. All over the world is reports of essentially animals coming back out feeling confidence again. They're no longer feeling so beleaguered. And um, we should pay attention to that and, and understand about how much stress that animals are um, having to sustain just because we want to do what we want to do. So there should not be, I mean, the other thing is that, you know, that Charlie talked about, and, and I believe that, you know, in other places as well, 
is that when you go out into nature, again, it's like going into someone's, other, someone's home. You be respectful and, um, and, and not have the, uh, you know, objective and, and feel the entitlement of, I want to see a bear. I want to see a bison. That's not, that's not a human right. Um, and so, you know, again, this is human entitlement and human primacy, uh, and that the, the, the nature and animals are more important. They're more important in numbers. Of course, they're diminishing. But I also believe that when we make those changes um, internally, when we, you know, subordinate our ego, <laughs> you know, when, when we start to listen, when we see that we're not that important, what is important is, you know, a, a philosophy of getting along and respecting and as much as we can, each of us go without and not be demanding. Um, that has a positive effect on us as humans and our relationships with, with each other. So, you know, the violence that we see is, is this because we're sort of, we're untethered. Rather than we're untethered because we're not fitting in. Yeah. And um, and that's that's a that's a big lesson. Yeah. And there's a disturbing ethos. It's not just I want a picture of a bear. It's like nature is a trophy. Even if you may not be yeah. gunning them down or putting their head yeah. on a wall, you see nature. Uh, uh, people even come to the park, see nature as trophy, things on the checklist, uh, which is a form of sort of arrogance and and dominance. Even if people aren't killing them. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, you exposed Charlie to the work of the physicist David Bohm, who was a colleague of Albert Einstein, and whose ideas about quantum physics inspired both of you. Maybe you can share how that work is relevant to caring for this planet and the animals. Well, you know, um, I'll, I'll tell this tells you a little bit about Charlie. Um, when you know, we worked together for a long time, and we're writing different versions and. I explain in that chapter about how that we had accomplished half of what we wanted. We explained that, you know, from the neuropsychology, the stuff and everything, we explained part of that, that what, that we basically, basically what we did was we said the, all these myths about grizzly bears being maniacs, being unpredictable, you know, et cetera, were false. And we showed that with the science. And, um, but that was only half of what we wanted because the other half was really how does Charlie see what he sees and how does he do what he does and why? So essentially we were looking for a way to articulate in collective terms Charlie's theory of nature. Um, and I had studied in the past physics, and that was my background in physics and mathematics largely, and and quantum physics. I'm not a quantum physicist. I'm very know it superficially, but I have a couple of colleagues uh, who are um, theoretical physicists, quantum physicists. And so I just kind of went, oh. And I showed this video <laughs> interview of David Bohm, who was a quantum physicist. He uh, was the heir apparent of Albert Einstein. Um, and I showed it to Charlie. And he called me up immediately and said, oh, my God, I, I, I feel like I've found my lost brother. He was like a soulmate in terms of hearing the way David Bohm described life in the world was very much the same way that Charlie experienced it. So when you look at quantum physics, quantum physics is organic 
to the Western science paradigm, what we would call the colonial paradigm. But what it does is it basically has changed it all. It, it was a paradigm buster. Everything that we look at, which is based on classical mechanics, you know, and reductionism and dualism, et cetera, um, quantum mechanics said, no, that's, that's not the way the world works. That's not the way things are. There's this notion of oneness, et cetera. Now, quantum mechanics, really, that happened over 100 years ago, and it continues to be developed, et cetera. But, but the majority, by far, uh, quantum mechanics has been stuffed into the same political, economic, social agenda. So it's been reduced into reductionism, you know, to make faster computers and, and uh, safer money and, and things like that. David Bohm was very unusual in the sense that he took the message, the philosophical, the profound existential message to the streets. And that message was really resonated with, with Charlie. Um, and, and even in the sense of the way, you know, that they had personal experiences were very similar. So that was also, I, I, it was very important that Charlie was not, quote, unquote, just a bear guy in the sense of, and this is also about the bears. You know, bears are not just bears. You know, it has to do with really understanding these beings, Charlie and the bears and other wildlife, uh, as um, having particular metaphysical and philosophical um, views which are resonant with quantum physics. Well, Gabe, how does your long work with Charlie inform your evolving views about animal sentience and animal welfare? Um, well, I would say writing the book, you know, I, I wrote the book de novo after uh, Charlie passed, and it was a real crucible for me um, because I felt this incredible, I mean, we, we were, we got to the point where, you know, I'd send things back and forth, and he'd say, did I say that, or did, did you write that? So I, I had full confidence, and close um, family and, and friends um, agreed that, that I um, was worthy and, and had um, the ability to be able to convey Charlie faithfully. That was very, very important for me ethically, as well as the bears. Um, but it was a crucible for me. I mean, it was, um, I was, it was, as many people felt, his loss was huge. Um, and, and really being, I had to do a lot of what I call internal work, you know. I would even look up words that I would just normally use just to make sure that I was using them in the context that was really true. And so having that precision and accuracy was very important. And I had to really do internal work to make sure I was like kind of a clear channel, you know, that I was not, although we were very much overlapping in our philosophies and ideas and blah, 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 nonetheless, this was really uh, a vehicle for hearing Charlie and the Bears' philosophy and science. That's what it was. Um, so I wouldn't say... Um, I guess I said, you know, back to your question, that was kind of a preface to it, is that uh, that's still working me in depth. I'm teaching a class on the book because there's a lot to reflect on, and uh, there's much deeper... Um, there, there, there's a lot of deeper things and underneath many layers in Charlie's teachings and his reflections. And uh, it's made me even more committed um, to the truth 
I guess that's what it is, is it just sort of burned out any um, kind of, I don't know what you want to call it, any kind of social, you know, pressure or social, you know, leanings to kind of soften the message. It's got, it's really sort of, really, um, really kind of cleaned me down to the bare truth and how to communicate that in the most effective way for the animals. So uh, it has made me, <clears throat> just what I wrote when I, that first passage, um, you know, where become more, you know, not deviate from the fidelity with nature, the way Charlie never deviated from his fidelity with nature. And I bring that into my work um, with, uh, we have a sanctuary and the wildlife that we try to support here under these very difficult times. And that changes you when you no longer are having a split allegiance between the human agenda, the dominant human agenda, and those of the animals. It changes you. And that's basically what I've done is that that shedding, and that requires we have a little tagline, be who animals need us to be. And that is who they need us to be. They need us to be honest, and they need us to... um, clean up our own internal act, our projections, our ego, all that kind of stuff, um, because they're very honest, and they're very real, and they're very true. And so that's had an effect on me um, to, to be, we have many animals right now just because of their ages and the abuses they suffered are catching up. And so a lot of part of my work is hospice work, and that means really being present where they're at. And so I guess that's kind of a long-winded way to say that's kind of what one of the effects of, of this work has had on me in my personal life. Wow. Thank you for, for your work. I, I, I should want, throw one thing parenthetically um, in here, uh, in, given listeners who go to bear country. Uh, Charlie um, was really all about safety in bear country. He got really close to bears. He understood bears. He was very safe. He never carried a gun. He carried bear spray, but he only had to use it a few times uh, to protect his cubs from other male bears that he feared would kill him. Um, Charlie was really all about uh, safety and discernment in bear country. He had electric fence around his cabin, and he could he could do things because he was so in tune with with bears and, and behavior and what they needed. And you know, and he was part bear, but not to understate that he was not silly out there either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I've got one last question uh, about your um, take on the future. Uh, you know, we obviously have been talking about a planet in peril and wildlife that have never been so imperiled by humankind, you know, through pollution and development and intolerance and killing and climate change and elders. Um, what do you think it's going to take uh, to turn things around if we still can? I think it takes internal transformation and a commitment the way Charlie did. And it means uh, putting um, nature first before ourselves. I mean, obviously we have to to live, but um, that having that fidelity to nature and um, just learning to put our own ego down and our needs. It might even be financial. It might be social. I mean, definitely... 
when you talk to people in the animal rights movement or vegan or whatever, they talk about the social tensions, you know, that, that to break the human-human contract, that's where tensions are because that maintains, that's maintaining a certain, you know, cultural contract. That's gone. That was never there. That's the artificial world that was created. Our job right now is learning how to live nature reality the way Charlie did. Charlie was very practical, and, and as you said, in terms of this parenthetical, he wasn't dumb. I mean, he spent years learning to live with nature and fitting in. And so, you know, and, and as we talked about, the trauma that animals have, have suffered, that you know, that cougars have suffered and bears, for example, um, and they don't have food. They don't have, they have people all over, you know, making noise. There's roads. That's incredibly disruptive. We have to understand that they have souls and minds, and they are traumatized. And we have to learn to go quietly, and we have to learn to recede, you know, give back nature. You know, we're not managing them. You know, we need to manage ourselves, and we need to refrain and restrain. We have a perfect opportunity right now to make a radical change in our culture, and that radical change is to devote ourselves to nature's wellness and putting ourselves second to nature. Well, thank you, Gay. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. This is Louisa Wilcox with Dr. Gay Bradshaw at Grizzly Times. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can also listen to a really fun interview that I did with Charlie Russell in 2016 on grizzlytimespodcast.org, episodes five and six. If you want to learn more about the Grizzly and what you can do to help, subscribe to our newsletter at grizzlytimespodcast.org. And if you can, give us a review.